This is an ABC podcast. I have just arrived in Rio de Janeiro. I thought I'd check out the Lapa neighbourhood. I can see, I can see across the Arcos de Lapa, lit up over there in the distance, the beautiful Roman-style Carioca aqueduct. And rows of bars and restaurants, people <laughs> spilling out joyously out into the street. And, well, I know I'm in Rio because there is literally music everywhere. From samba to shuro. The energy, the, the vibrancy of this place, it's contagious. And I can see why people... People fall in love with this city and, and this country. But despite the joys of this tourist beat, I know that Rio, like any city, is complex. And this weekend, I hope to, to understand some of those contrasts, to pick away at the layers that make up this brilliant and complicated city. Attention, passengers. <laughs> I'm Jonathan Green. This is Return Ticket, the podcast that takes you on journeys of the mind to the near and the far flung, searching for what the tourist never sees. It's Saturday morning and the streets of Copacabana just waking up. I can see, I can see a tiny Cristo, Christ the Redeemer. Huge statue, but so far away, hovering over us in the distance. I'm about to check it out. And the vista of Rio from that famous mountaintop. I'm meeting Mariana Cavalcanti there. She's an associate professor in sociology at the State University of Rio de Janeiro. She's going to peel back some of the layers of this city, help me understand how it all comes together. But before I get there, I'm going to grab a quick breakfast. A bag of pao de queijo, little, little cheese puffs. And those juice bars lining the streets, they look amazing. They're, they're rows of fresh tropical fruit. I might check one of those out too. Ah, um suco com abacaxi, graviola e banana, por favor. Obrigado. Okay, all right. Off now to see Cristo. Taxi! Mariana, what, what a view! And and look, thank you, thank you for meeting me here and taking time out. And I'm I'm just standing here, full of wonder, trying to work out how Rio just fits together. Can you can you help me? I'll try to show you around a bit, but Rio's a very difficult city. If you look at it from up here, what you see is that Christ the Redeemer is looking towards Guanabara Bay. Yep. That means that he has his back turned against most of the metropolitan region of Rio. What do we read into that? <laughs> <laughs> yes, because, I mean, if you think about it, right, you set up a statue right on top of a hill, and it's a statue of Christ, no less, right? So he does have his back turned against something. And in the case of Rio, that his back being turned against half the city completely maps on to 
the many inequalities that constitute the city. Yeah. I've told, and, and we can see here that this, this is a city of hilltops. How does that city story change depending on your vantage point? It makes a huge difference on which hilltop you are, what you're going to see of the city, the sense that you're going to get of the city, the people that you're going to meet in the city, and the photographs that you can take in the city. So most of the postcard views, they are just from a very small portion of the city. So, you know, the the gorgeous views of the glorious beaches and these very beautiful people living extremely glamorous lives. That is just a very tiny portion of the city. If you speak of the Rio de Janeiro city itself, you're talking about something around six million inhabitants, right? More than one million of them live in the city's favelas. But that is almost, it's still only just part of the story of Rio, of, of what makes the everyday, of the people that actually live here. Because in practice, what we have before us is a metropolitan region of 12 million people. Yeah. So really the city is twice as, as big as we imagine it. There are um, thousands of workers that come, well, millions of people actually, that come into the city from neighboring municipalities where the situation is very different from the postcards that we're used to seeing. That's a story that I've heard that, that might illustrate some of these some of these inequities, especially around government infrastructure in favela communities and the image of Rio that's projected to the rest of the world. Tell me about the Alamal Favela cable car service. It was... It was built in 2011, but closed just after the Rio Olympics in, in 2016. What, what happened there? So when Rio wins the Olympic bid, what happens is that there was already an infra, a national infra, infrastructural upgrading program being implemented by the Lula government, and that had a component of infrastructural upgrading for favelas in general. So... When that program gets implemented, they sort of decide that the, it needs a gondola cable car system because Colombia already had them and it was part of these traveling ideas about the good city that sometimes, you know, they get conceived and thought up in certain areas and then they get imported to other places and sometimes what happens is that they lose usually uh, most of their advantages. So that's sort of what happens. So this project comes back and two massive gondola cable car systems get constructed in Rio. One is in the uh, Alemón complex, which is this grouping of favelas that are located in Rio's old industrial zone that has been very hardly hit by deindustrialization and by the drug trade itself, because it was an area that had a very violent every day and where the mm. police um, are usually very violent in these areas. So symbolically, this was an area that the state sort of had to take over in order to convey to the public that Rio was a city that would be able to host an event of the dimension of the Summer Olympics. So these massive monumental infrastructural upgrading projects in the years leading up to 
the Olympics, they aesthetically conveyed the message that the state had arrived and that the state had taken over the favelas. Was that was that a welcome message in the in the favelas? That's exactly my point. If they had gone into the favelas, if the if the you know the federal government, the state government that actually built it had gone into the favelas and asked the many associative movements that existed there what they wanted, their response would have been, we want a sewage network. But the sewage network is the complete opposite of the, of the gondola cable car system, which is extremely visible, right? from the You can see it from the airport. You can see it from all the major expressways in the city. And what people really wanted was something completely invisible. They wanted sewage networks. You know, they'd already built the water distribution network. What they needed was something that would help these favelas deal with rains and floods and with the drainage that they need. But the, 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 final, the final slap of the face is that even... It's closed. <laughs> the, 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 the cable car stops working just after the just after the games. Yeah, exactly. It's like it was just a month later. They didn't even like extend it a little bit further, like so that they couldn't be accused of this. You know, it caused a lot of attention in the city, and it was really all about the landscape. It was all about the pictures, and you know, within a year, things had really almost gone back to normal in in the favela Valemont, but. In the end, it's not really that things went back to normal because this is like another failure accumulated, right? So right. this also makes people's relationships to the state in these areas even more difficult after such after another bad experience like this. Mariana, that that has been an exceptional tour, eye-opening, and as you say, what a what a rich place. I need I need to get back down there and, and keep exploring. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. I've just seen a, a bird's eye view of Rio from the, the top of the Cocovado Mountain. And, and now, well, now I'm going to see the city from a, a very different perspective. Around 25 years ago, uh, two young teen brothers started to build a miniature village in the favela Paraya da Silva, Project Mahinho. It means little hill, and it's grown from a, a childhood role-play game to a TV production company. It now forms a vital cultural and educational space for this community. Mohinho's artistic kudos has been recognised in galleries, museums around the world. Yay unto the, the Venice Biennale. So, like so many of Rio's hillside favelas, you can only catch a community van so far up the mountain. And then, mm-hmm, yep, you need to proceed on foot. Oh, that, that is quite the, quite the workout. I'm, I'm, I'm walking through the narrow streets to get up to Mojino, and there are houses clustered together, some some beautiful murals on the walls. Almost, almost there. 
This, this is incredible. I have just arrived at Project Mohinho and I'm sorry, wow. That that is worth the climb. It's literally a, a model Rio village. It, it's made up of hundreds of colourful painted clay bricks. It, way up the hillside, stretching away. I'm, such a thing to see. I'm here with Alessandro Angelini, a, a, an assistant professor of anthropology at John Hopkins University. He did his PhD on Mojino. Alessandro, I'm still learning the, the lay of this city. Can you explain where we are in this, in this model village? We were sitting right next to the main street of one district of Rio called Rio Comprido, which is a neighbourhood just over the hill from here. And I can see... <laughs> is the, the National Arts Museum. Yeah, so, so they, they integrate, you know, a lot of the parts of the city that they have been to and that they've experienced. There's an there's a internet house, a bus stop, a bakery, a restaurant. There's, in the past, there have been banks. There's the city hall, police station, hospital, the Bobby, the military police uh, headquarters. There's a little Cristo. There's a brothel, motel, nightclubs. So I can I can see all the the miniature buildings. Can can you tell me about the characters in this role play game? They're the, they look like well little three. They look like three little Lego bricks stacked on top of each other with some some ornaments. There are characters, bonecos, who are. Uh, just residents of, of the city. There are drug traffickers and police and shopkeepers and um, there are children, there are old people, there are men, there are women, there are DJs who are important figures. There's famous singers that grow into fame here in Mourinho. Um, so a lot of, neither of these two characters I picked up have any accessories attached to them, but other figurines have uh, maybe a cell phone, which is a, a small piece of Lego strapped to their side with a piece of string, or a little miniature gun, which they take from those kind of G.I. Joe action figures. And so that's another way of identifying what kind of person a boneco is. And each one starts to have a life history as they play with them. And there are thousands of them. Solan Souza de Oliveira started this with his, with his brother. What what inspired you to create this 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 amazing miniature world, Solan? I started in '97. At the end of '97, I started just for fun. It was a game, a child's play to pass the time, escape violence, escape negative things, things that were wrong. And creating the Morrinho Project only helped me with that, to further change my reality, to change my point of view, to change my life trajectory within my community. Because living in Islam is not easy. I think that living in Islam within a community is not easy for anyone, because in addition to the discrimination from society, there is discrimination from the people who live within the Islam community. There is also some gang-related discrimination because it deals with gang-related stuff. 
wars between police and drug dealers, and problems with the government. It's all mixed together. Most of the problems in the slums do not come from the slum itself, but rather they are outside issues that are brought to the slum. And creating the Morrinho project for me was different because I didn't see a problem. I saw a solution, and that's what helped me a lot. Alessandro, do, do you feel that, that through the game and the, and the TV shows and the movies that followed that the Mojinho has, well, has it been able to challenge the stereotypes of favela communities? In terms of stereotypes, Mojinho both relishes in them. So there are drug lords and there's their... Um, they're very kind of grand characters, as well as um, Mourinho also tries to subvert those um, stereotypes. So you might have you might have characters that seem to fit one type, but because you can play with them and do anything you want with them, uh, they can they can break the mold. And so the the world is Mourinho is very complex. It, it doesn't deny that those stereotypes exist or that people might fit those stereotypes. But at the same time, it, it, in the sense that it's an open play world, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that anyone has to stick to those stereotypes either. And I suppose, I suppose the role-play game and the media productions have enabled community to, well, to tell their own stories and for others to, to learn from that. The Mojinhos Project's mission is to help improve the community, improve the community's visibility and bring other resources and new opportunities to the community. Well, I, I have had the best time, just a wonderful time visiting Mojinho. Sola and Alessandro, so kind. Thank you so much for showing me around. interesting to learn more about the the different socioeconomic and, and political layers of Rio. But there's another aspect to Brazilian culture and identity that's been growing steadily in the past couple of decades, and that is evangelical Christianity. Christina Rocha is an anthropology professor, director of the Centre for Religion and Society Research at Western Sydney University. And she has agreed uh, to meet me at a mega church. It's a bit of a drive. It's, it's over the bay from Rio's centre in Nitheroy. Taxi! JP do Brasil, o melhor da música nacional. Christina, uh, thank you. Thank you so much for meeting me. Um, I have to say. <laughs> This is a bit of an unusual meeting spot. We're in the front of a of a car yard. Um, where's the church? <laughs> so this is yeah. This you can see this highway. The motorway is right here, and we are here because we're going to visit a mega church called Lagoinha. Usually, Pentecostal churches, especially mega churches, they can be in the outskirts of the city. They can be very big. And this church, as you turn around, you can see here they have a logo. They have a big warehouse, and the, the warehouse. It's on the top. There is a sign saying a 
place for new beginnings. And if you look at the logo, you see that it's very similar to a megachurch from Australia. And that is, you can, can you see that? It's Hillsong. Ah, yeah, okay. What I find yeah. really interesting about this church is that the church, the headquarters is in Minas Gerais, in Belo Horizonte, but this church is by the son-in-law of the main pastor, the foundational pastor, and he decided to copy a little yeah. Hillsong because he could see that it was exploding around the world and he could see that this was a passport for success. And has that has that resonated with, oh, with people in Rio? Yes, 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 very much so. Pentecostalism responds to a lot of the needs of a poor population. Uh, in Brazil, Pentecostals are mostly black women, young and poor. But in the past 20 years, in the 21st century, it has really moved into aspirational middle classes. And more recently, in the upper middle classes. You mentioned that in the past, poorer, poorer communities were more attracted to, the, to Pentecostalism because of its, its promise to improve their lot in life. But, well, we're in an affluent area of Niteroi. Why are the middle and upper classes embracing Pentecostalism as well? Well, Pentecostalism is not homoge a homogeneous phenomenon. So for the middle classes, we have what it's called a seeker church, and that's what Hillsong very much is, a church for those who were not Christian before or who had left Christianity, and it really has a different method. So it, it, the building, for example, as you can see, is a warehouse. It's, it feel, feels more like a corporation. You can't find... Look for the, the crosses. There are no crosses. Yeah. Yeah, it, it doesn't look like a typical church. It's a really seamless connection between the secular world of people's working lives and stuff and the uh, spiritual world. Also, it looks like an auditorium. It's dark inside. You see the other church in the poorer areas would be, you know, fluorescent lights. And here it's like an auditorium. It's beautiful music. It's very sleek. There is a bookstore. There is a cafe. There is, you know, kids service. There are celebrity pastors. There is television, media. So it's very, it's very sleek and focus again on individual success, of course, the spiritual battle, of course, but less on the healing side, less on exorcism and more on, on the affluence. So regardless of, of social class, religion well, still has a strong presence here. I, I started my day at Christo and it feels like he has this, this universal presence over all of that. What, what does Christo's iconicity say about this city? Well, I think it says that it's still very Christian and, um, and that we can say for Brazil as well, but it's changing. So from Catholicism more to Pentecostalism. And, and we can see this with the election of the far-right president Bolsonaro and now with people who still connecting Bolsonaro with Pentecostalism and, and invading the, the buildings of the government in, in Brasilia, as you probably know. And they were praying as they were doing that. Many, not all, but many were praying on their knees as they invaded. So with wrapped with the Brazilian flag. So Christianity is still very strong in Brazil and is entrenched in politics now as well. Christina, thank you for, for helping me explain this 
this element of the tapestry of this city. Thank you. such an eye-opening day. I feel like I've only scraped the surface in, in learning the layers of this marvellous, complex city. I've got a few hours uh, before I catch my flight. I can't really leave before visiting, you guessed it, Ipanema Beach. I'm told the Aperador Rock, the, the south of the beach, is the perfect place to end the day. Oh, look. It's already crowds gathering. So, excuse me while, while I grab a caipirinha and join them. You've been listening to Return Ticket, this time from the hilltops of Rio de Janeiro. You heard from Mariana Cavalcanti, Alessandro Angelini, Serlan Souza de Oliveira and Christine Rocha. Producers are Alan Whedon and Rachel Bongiorno. Technical production and theme by Brendan O'Neill. Executive producer, Rhiannon Brown. If you enjoyed this podcast, do tell your friends. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Green. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.